Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts, featuring discussions with scholars on all forms of media content and technology. I'm your host, John Baltz, a marketing and advertising professional. Our website is in newbooksandcommunications.com, where you can find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show, as well as our archives, where you can listen to past conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please tell a friend or leave a review. Your feedback helps us have better conversations with authors. Today's guest is journalism professor Josh Braun, who is the author of This Program is Brought to You by Distributing Television News Online, published in 2015 by Yale University Press. Josh spent time getting an inside look at MSNBC between 2007 and 2012, a time when the company was consolidating the brands of its television network and online news hub and rolling out new technologies internally like blogs, video players, and community forums that could support viewer and visitor demands. The solution to these challenges was not imposed through smooth, top-down, hierarchical decision-making, but rather through a messy internal process involving multiple players with competing objectives. The book's title, This Program is Brought to You By, has the familiar ring of an advertiser supporting a piece of television content. But the book's intent is to shift the focus back to the people inside MSNBC who, quite literally, brought the programs to you. The conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is Josh Braun, an assistant professor of journalism studies in the journalism department at University of Massachusetts Amherst. His research centers around online media distribution, looking at the nuts and bolts of online television distribution and web development as a sociological phenomenon, sort of like the development of power grids or highways. Josh, welcome to the New Books in Media and Communications podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now... Near the end of the book, you write a short mock news story summarizing the period of research. I'm going to quote it here. Um, MSNBC.com was one of the first mainstream media organizations to invest heavily in social networking, acquiring Newsvine in 2007. In 2010, further recognizing the commercial importance of the social web, MSNBC.com fully integrated Newsvine's community features into its primary domain, demonstrating its commitment to the enterprise by pilot testing its new community blogging software with one of MSNBC's TV flagship primetime programs, The Rachel Maddow Show, and subsequently releasing the platform across the whole of the blue site. Um, This is a 100% factually accurate assessment, correct? Uh, And if so, why isn't it the story? Yeah, so that is that is sort of how things would have appeared from the outside if you were talking about um, what was going on at MSNBC 
uh, in the period leading up to 2011 or so. And, uh, and so the, the trick is, and sort of what the, the book kind of gets at is that, uh, MSNBC is a brand was, uh, you know, is kind of a unified entity if you're looking at it as the public, but internally it's actually not even just one company, but several companies that had, uh, in turn, uh, you know, uh, uh, acquired different smaller organizations, um, had lots of different editorial staffs and show teams working on different properties. Um, and sort of one of the, the points that the, the book makes is that, um, and this is not unusual for sort of large contemporary media organizations, um, is that what appears as kind of a unified thing from the outside um, is actually kind of full of, uh, of different moving parts and editorial subcultures uh, internally. And so what was going on sort of behind the scenes um, is that you had all of these uh, different teams. You had Newsvine, um, which you just kind of briefly described as it was this social media startup that ended up um, providing uh, many of the community features um, and even uh, sort of some central parts of the content management um, software for MSNBC.com uh, and for the, the sort of web presence of, uh, of the cable channels. Um, different um, programs, um, but it had sort of started out as as a social network that was uh, you know news themed, but you know akin to Dig or Reddit or something like this. Um, and its integration into uh, MSNBC.com um, and the sort of larger MSNBC brand um, meant that it was sort of pursuing multiple uh, goals at once. It was trying to keep its social media platform running at the same time. It was sort of serving as a development team um, for uh, for this broader collection of properties. Um, and then on the television side, um, you had a bunch of different programs that sort of were, were kind of being um, shoehorned into a pretty uh, common uh, web pre- or web presence or sort of an identical template for each of the different shows. And you had individual programs within that, uh, like the Rachel Maddow show, which figures large in the book, um, who weren't necessarily happy with the, the web template they'd been given. Um, and so they, uh, at the same time, were kind of pursuing their own trajectory of getting a web presence that they were happy with. Um, and so they went out looking for... Um, for a tool to start a, a blog with, um, and there was a lot of sort of internal negotiation about uh, using the new or whether the Newsvine tool would be the one that they used, and ultimately, like sort of how fast it could be pressed into service. Um, and so, ultimately, I guess the way that I would I would kind of summarize all this because it's a it's a complicated story that takes the bulk of the book to tell, um, but it's this notion that a lot of the time, uh, sort of change uh, whether it's sort of like change in infrastructure or change in strategy uh, for distribution, uh, oftentimes within a large media organization, will sort of move forward by different groups asking for forgiveness rather than permission. Um, and so you had a lot of people kind of pursuing their own provincial goals in different ways, uh, and it kind of realigned the way all the resources uh, within MS- MSNBC um, were being utilized and resulted in, in a pretty like, dramatically different um, online distribution strategy for the entire uh, organization or set of organizations. I'd like to come back to some of the broader themes of the book a little later, but I want to I dig in here on, on a couple of things. One, the point in time at which this research that you're undertaking is is 2010. 
That's right. Yeah, that was when the primary field work for the book was done. So why is a blogging platform or blogging software so difficult to get done in 2010? Right. And and so this is actually, you know, uh, again, it's sort of you could tell different stories about this, uh, you know. So from the outside, this it might seem pretty ridiculous, as you're saying, in 2010, why is it so hard to, to get a blog done? Um, but if you look at what actually happened at, at uh at, uh, at msnbc.com, uh, which also I, I should mention here, uh, msnbc.com uh, ran the web presence both for the MSNBC cable channel, but also for NBC News and all of the all the sort of uh, like programs like the Nightly News or the Today Show uh, and things of that nature, as well as a bunch of sort of online only uh, destinations and properties. And they had, you know, and so there's a lot of. Um, uh, you know, over the years, there's been a lot of finger pointing when it comes to so-called uh, legacy media organizations and how they might have been slow to adopt um, different digital tools and distribution strategies. Uh, and this might initially seem like another example of that. But in fact, um, MSNBC.com and, and NBC more broadly, um, they were actually uh, pretty early uh, like they were, they were sort of ahead of the curve on this with regard to sort of large, at least large television news organizations. And they started a lot of blogs early. Um, and those, uh, those early efforts were sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, er, er, were kind of highly experimental. Um, they put them on different platforms over time. So the very first ones out of the gate would have been using uh, something like uh, TypePad, like Six Apart's tool. Um, and then when they decided that they wanted to standardize on something, they used another really kind of early uh, entrant, uh, which was this, uh, it w- which was um, uh, the community server uh, platform, which so community server was this company that provided sort of integrated uh, blogs and forum tools to sort of set up um, as, as the name suggests uh, the, the different tools that you might need to sort of host an online community and publish, uh, publish uh, a blog and other sort of online content. Um, and so they used those kind of those tools very early on. Um, and I, I think uh, so I would, I would need to check the dates, but I want to say this goes back to like 2005 or 2006, um, when these initial uh, efforts are being started. Um, and so what you ended up with a few years later is, uh, is them wanting to kind of upgrade this, uh, this, um, the software platform, but it's, but in the process, they have to then move all of the, uh, move the blogs that are hosted and all these different tools onto a new, um, common platform that sort of, uh, it has more contemporary affordances and a nicer look than say a community server, um, or, uh, or even, or the, the sort of older, uh, type pad blogs that they had. Um, and doing that, kind of migrating from a bunch of different blogging tools onto a single new platform, and especially one that they would ho- they hoped would be kind of forward-looking and easy to sort of iterate on, uh, turned out to be a pretty involved process of moving different databases around. Um, and the other sort of aspect of this is uh, is that at the same time that they were doing that, the whole site was getting a face a facelift um, and sort of an, an infrastructural upgrade. Um, and so you could you not only had to upgrade the blogging tool. Um, you also had to make sure that that sort of it it would hang well with the the like new visual identity 
of the rest of the site, which was tied to a separate sort of infrastructure upgrade. So basically, you had a lot of different properties that, yeah, and with, with a lot of different kind of legacy publishing platforms that had all, all had to be kind of upgraded and standardized at the same time. Um, and that made for kind of a, a quite a, a big task. And then there's details about different development strategies and stuff like that that the book gets into. Um, but, it, you know, it turns out that it's pretty difficult <laughs> to just sort of throw a switch and move everybody over to a new uh, new software tool if you want to preserve your archives or, or and serve all the different types of groups um, that, again, are all kind of uh, are working toward their own goals within a large organization like this. And did Rachel Maddow and her show and team have some of the strongest incentives for pushing towards this new blogging platform or sort of why is why is that show unique in terms of moving this forward yeah so so rachel maddow uh even before she came to msnbc was was very popular online and really heavily pursued uh sort of the the web as as a, a medium um for you know both distributing her content um and also just interacting with audiences and whatnot and so she sort of um so she was kind of and and was really kind of pushed the web as as sort of part of her personal brand, um, even before it became a show and sort of a brand affiliated with MSNBC. Um, and so when she came in uh, to MSNBC TV, uh, one of the things that they really wanted was to sort of have this active web presence, and in particular to have a blog that would that would um, kind of serve as a hub for all of their different social media efforts and would also kind of be part of the lefty uh, blogosphere um, that, that, that people are, you know, that will often be familiar with or point to. Um, and so kind of, uh, so this was, a, this was sort of a big part of kind of, of the way that she, um, uh, the way that she sort of envisioned um her editorial process and everything else. And so, uh, when she comes in, uh, she's coming in a little bit late into the process where all of these, all these other shows have kind of fairly static, um, templates because in many cases they had not, uh, you know, although, uh, the web became a much bigger, uh, thing with regard to television. Um, a lot of the the programs had not been that interested in contributing it to, to it previously. Um, you know, it was enough of a job to put television, to put just regular television programs online. Line. Uh, a web presence for TV meant something different a few years ago because, uh, you know, before broadband penetration, it was pretty difficult to, to get, uh, like, video to people in the first place. Um, and and so, uh, basically, she was a lot more interested in having a large interactive web presence than until the very recent past, a lot of the other sort of television programs um, had been. So it was pretty important to her and to her, to her staff um, to have something that was highly interactive that they could use to sort Sort of um, published content on a frequent basis, um, and that would kind of have afford, have the real affordances of a, of a contemporary blog in terms of like being able to to link between uh, link to other sources very easily and kind of be updated very simply, and just the simple kind of reverse chronological format of a blog. They wanted that feel um, of um, if not informality may not be the right word, but that was certainly what they were going for at the time. Is sort of a um, a relatively informal web presence that made uh, what would normally have and just kind of a, a broadcast program feel a little bit more interactive and accessible to audiences. I mean, you, she tells you uh, an interesting comment that quite early she, early on she realized that MSNBC.com was not our website. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you interpret what that statement means? 
Right. So, so basically when, when, like, as I mentioned uh, briefly before, um, all of these, all the different sort of, um, all the different templates for, um, the, the programs on MSNBC.com and, and NBC were, uh, were basically, um, video players with a place to add some, uh, some headlines and links. Um, and there were a few, uh, blogs, but they were attached to the older software, which they were in the process of jettisoning, um, when, when Rachel Maddow, uh, started at MSNBC. And, and so, uh, the, the, um, and so she was very kind of unhappy with the constraints that that of that sort of template um, and was unhappy with the idea that it was going to be sort of the primary uh, web page of the site, um, wanted a lot more interactivity and a lot more ability to do stuff. Um, and the other kind of aspect of this um, is that um, MSNBC TV and MSNBC.com are actually, or were, I should say, because the corporate, the corporate ownership structure has changed since uh, since the time period described in the book, but they were separate uh, companies. There were these joint ventures that uh, that uh, or, or originally a single joint venture um, between uh, 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 between M- NBC uh, Television or, or NBC Universal on the one hand uh, and uh, and Microsoft on the other um, to create uh, this sort of co-branded property that was going to exist on television and on the web. But over time, uh, sort of uh, Microsoft, uh, the sort of uh, I should say NBC um, became uh, more uh, interested in sort of managing its own um, uh, its own kind of uh, 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 television programming, and they didn't necessarily want uh, want Microsoft's involvement in what was going on on the TV side. And to be fair, Microsoft was never really all that involved to begin with. Um, and meanwhile, sort of Microsoft felt like it was you know they were. Uh, it, that uh, they also kind of wanted uh, some separation from what was going on in terms of like producing television and whatnot. So the two companies um, split, uh, and so NBC News was basically, or, or and NBC uh, Universal uh, were the proprietors of MSNBC Television. Meanwhile, Microsoft had its own uh, MSNBC.com website, and which it was also sort of its own company, and that they continued to share ownership of with uh, with NBC uh, Universal, but it was it was a separate sort of corporate entity at that point. Um, and the two, and when, and when you looked at what, what MSNBC.com, the website looked like versus what MSNBC television looked like, uh, there were two very different things. So MSNBC.com, the website grew out of a period when, uh, when they were, when the, uh, the, the idea of the brand was still to present, uh, sort of, uh, um, neutral point of view news, uh, to sort of like a classic objective news stories. Um, whereas MSNBC television had made a shift to sort of what you would call like op-ed programming. So some people point to it as being sort of the liberal version of Fox News or something along those lines. Um, the story about kind of where, how they ended up where they, they are in terms of the political spectrum is a little bit more complex complex than just wanting to be sort of a straight up counterweight to Fox or something like that. Um, but ultimately like the, the upshot of all of this is, is that the programming on MSNBC television, particularly in prime time, um, carried a very sort of particular political bent. Um, and the stuff on the website was what was very neutral and the people who edited the website, 
um, we're, we're interested in sort of not having a kind of cross-contamination of brand images. So they didn't want a bunch of opinionated content on their front page. Uh, and so they, they siloed a lot of the television content off to small, uh, like parts of uh, kind of small, like sort of backwaters of the site that they called like microsites and whatnot. Um, and so this made sense, uh, from, from, to them for a variety of perspectives. One was that the sort of MSNBC.com was doing, sorry, it was doing uh, an enormous amount of traffic. So, you know, they were consistently, excuse me, within like the top five uh, U.S. news websites in terms of the amount of traffic that they were pulling in. And, uh, and, and so they were, they were doing quite well <laughs> as sort of a neutral point of view website. Um, and, and they, and particularly during the time when, when MSNBC, uh, was doing poorly in the ratings, um, they, or the television uh, program was doing, or the television side was doing poorly in the ratings. There was not particularly uh, a huge incentive <laughs> just to, to plaster, um, like sort of MSNBC television content, um, all over the front page when they were doing well as they were. And then the last sort of thing that affects this is also kind of the temporal difference between um, like television and the web, right? So, so particularly when you're talking about primetime programming, um, it, you know, it comes on in the evening uh, and which is typically not the best time of the day when you're talking about web traffic. Um, so most web, most news websites do the bulk of their traffic um, during daytime hours when people are checking the news from their desks and so forth. Uh, and so uh, basically putting up last night's newscast on your or promoting it heavily on your front page um, kind of does a disservice to your, your traffic numbers and do it. And, and uh, when you're trying to compete with like the New York times.com or Huffington post or things like that, that are kind of putting up the, the latest kind of hourly headlines. So there were a huge number of kind of reasons, some of which are unique to MSNBC and others were uh, others, which are quite common across different uh, sort of uh, the web presence for different television news sites. Um, the, or the web presence for different television news programs, they kind of relegated uh, like the the uh, Matto programs and all of uh, the the cable uh, the cable networks uh, content to, to kind of uh, uh, less highly promoted portions of the site, um, and so all of those things kind of led to uh, dissatisfaction on the part of people who were wanted to really push for an active web presence for television programs. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong here, though, but. On this tension or just a difference or whatever it is between television, what's happening on the MSNBC television side and what's happening on the MSNBC.com side, um, part of the reason that someone like Rachel Maddow would be able to push for new tools, new capabilities, new staff members, as you point out, would be on the web would be precisely because of the success that she has in the legacy platform of television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Um, so, I mean, so the, uh, so within a, just a few, uh, like months of her coming in, uh, at MSNBC.com as sort of a regular host, um, she had previously been a guest. And I think occasionally, a, I can't remember if this is correct, but occasionally maybe a substitute host for Keith Olbermann, um, but at least a prominent guest on his program. Um, but when she got her own show, uh, you know, within, within a matter of months, she had doubled the, the, the cable channels ratings in her time slot. Um, and it wasn't, uh, and it was also, so, so basically she becomes a really like powerful, 
um, kind of celebrity and and, uh, and kind of and force within uh, the the television uh, network group because of the, the sorts of ratings he's drawing, um, because of the kind of because of this sort of. Uh, um, it, she's, uh, you know, kind of helping to consolidate the, the, this, this kind of, uh, left of center brand. So there's all these reasons why she's, why she's like, uh, basically, um, becomes very quickly a major part, uh, of, of, of the, the television, uh, or the, of the, the sort of television channels, um, branding. And at the same time, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's, so if you look at other kind of programs that MSNBC had, like, so for example, Hardball. So there's Hardball with Chris Matthews, right? So, if, you know, and which you could imagine a world in which, you know, Chris Matthews, um, has to take some time off or, 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 uh, or, you know, decides to retire or something along those lines and Hardball with Chris Matthews becomes, you know, Hardball with somebody else. <laughs> Whereas the Rachel Maddow show is, you know, you have a situation where uh, the program is uh, and the, the brand of that program is, is you know largely synonymous with the host um, so so yeah so there's there's all like so her um, success at television yes gave her an enormous amount of influence um, you know it gave her uh, it gave her a contract that that sort of um, was that also uh, you know, uh, probably made things easier for for kind of um, to to exert influence within uh, with like is uh, um, to exert influence uh, when it came to um, to sort of moving things around. And even though MSNBC.com and MSNBC TV were, as I pointed out, you know, separate companies, um, MSNBC.com you know still has the still had the exclusive rights to distribute um, the the cable channels um, television programming, and as the Ratings got better for that, um, and as uh, sort of broadband penetration picked up, and people like, and more and more people started watching more and more um, video content online, um, it became a pretty, you know, it, it became a, a much better um, sort of proposition uh, to sort of to have a, like a really. Um, a, a really active web presence for for these programs, and so uh, from their perspective as well. And so, um, so they may not have you know sort of gone about it as quickly as as uh, as someone like Matto would have liked. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, they had a lot of incentive to make her happy because she was sort of um, because of her success at television. She also promised to bring a lot of traffic to whatever the web presence for her program was going to be. So. Now, so zooming back a bit, within MSNBC, you have obviously all of these different teams at different levels. You have individual shows and their teams like the Rachel Maddow Show or the Hardball Show. You, of course, have the technology teams like Newsvine who are developing uh, this, the platforms or the software that are used internally. You have the management. They're all over. Um, and you refer to this sort of organizational structure today as as post bureaucratic um, where it 's essentially project based management as you call it um, that comes together and for the purpose of accomplishing a task uh, and then after that task is done, the teams whatever groups of teams came together disperse, and then a new set comes together for a new task um, one I just I just want to make something clear. You're not making any claims about whether this is a structure unique in media companies, are you? Uh, no, although it is pretty common in media companies. So if you look at people who've written a lot about sort of um, organizational structures and cultures, um, you know, there there is um, 
there is an argument that that this is this is particularly common among uh, media companies that are at least in in the kind of new media environment. Um, but if you look at somebody like uh, so David Starks uh, is is a um, He's kind of an organizational sociologist um, who uh, who's advanced a lot of, of the, these kind of uh, of this kind of research, um, and and so he like look he compares uh, what's going on. He, he, compare, he points out that this this kind of complex organizational structure is cropping up all over the place, whether it's in the media in particular or in uh, in companies in uh, former Soviet bloc countries. So you know. Uh, who are who are like uh, uh, um, trading commodities and things like that? So there's all sorts of different um, places where where you get these kind of increasingly complex uh, organizational structures. But certainly, uh, media is is a is an area where they're uh, increasingly common. <laughs> so. I'm also trying to think of other industries or settings where it might be more common or sort of what's what prompts it sort of where where does it come from i mean i'm thinking like look in my own professional field of every advertising agency i've ever worked for is is exactly like this um and frankly um when i think about some technology companies that i've been a part of again this this same notion of a project-based management system is everywhere. I mean, we call it cross-functional teams or whatnot, but uh, I'm I'm trying to think, is this, is is technology, is the technology piece sort of what's driving this cross-functionality or is it something else? Right. So, so the technology piece is a big one. The word driving is a, is a, is a tricky one, right? And so, so you basically hit on like one of the major uh, sort of I won't call it a debate, but one of the major touchstones of scholarship on uh, on on technology broadly and media technologies in particular, um, which is this notion of sort of uh, of what some people call material agency or the the like the extent to which technologies kind of make us do stuff versus the extent to which we um, kind of control the design and development of technologies. Right. Um, so I know you've worked with this. We've l- looked at nudge and things like like this, so you're you're very familiar with this sort of debate, um, but yeah, this this idea this idea that sort of do our phones make us distractible, um, or is it something about the way that we use our phones, or is it something about uh, the way uh, about the culture that we live in that designs phones like this, or something along this? So so you can have all sorts of different versions of this argument, um, but certainly like it, so and it's so it's, it's kind of. Uh, um, but whatever kind of stance you take, um, there's certainly a big shift in the way that, that we handle technologies as a culture. Um, and so the, uh, so if you look at somebody like Thomas Hughes, who was a historian of, of technology, and he wrote about some of the things that you mentioned on um, in the introduction, like power grids and, uh, and, uh, uh, missile defense systems and things like this. Um, he, uh, one of the arguments that he makes is that there is, there was this shift over the course of the 20th century in the way that, um, that we thought about the large kind of technological infrastructures that we built. Um, and w- that we moved from kind of thinking about them as sort of one and done projects, right? Where it's sort of the, the goal is to build something lasting and, in, and enduring, um, like a railroad <laughs> or a power grid. 
grid or something like that that was going to uh, or a dam that was going to serve humanity for, you know, decades or centuries or something like that. Right. People were thinking in these kind of grand terms of their legacy. Um, and now we are in a situation where uh, technological development um, it frequently kind of centers around uh, the notion of disruption, um, where everything is going to be uh, temporary, everything is going to be iterated on, uh, and the sort of goal of technologies is to upset whatever the last thing was. So, so basically, Hughes basically said that we lived, we kind of lived through this period where the way technologies are designed and the the goal sort of behind their design uh, went from sort of creating these enduring um, things uh, to basically an environment where kind of uh, perpetual change is sort of the assumption. Um, and, and so that creates a, a different, uh, also, uh, if, you know, if you're thinking in that way, you have different sort of management structures that, that go along with that, um, that are much more kind of based around and kind of more, a more iterative strategy or whatnot. Um, and so he points to sort of uh, different, he points to projects like the development of the internet, which tended up being kind of pretty egalitarian and, and less top down, um, than, than in, in many ways, uh, than, than sort of, uh, like more of the kind of, um, government managed, uh, things that had gone before. Um, and so there's that aspect of it, you know, and, and, and certainly like if you point to sort of the affordances, the, the, the abilities that technology gives you in a contemporary media environment, that's also a pretty interesting thing to look at. So if you think about, uh, sort of how you, how sort of, um, you might have designed something like an ad campaign or a new website or something along those lines. Um, previously, although a new website is not the optimal example, right? So let's go for something that's sort of, let's go for an ad campaign, sort of pre-digital media, where um, you might have had a few meetings with the clients, and then people kind of go behind uh, closed doors, and you had um, some hierarchical, uh, relatively hierarchical division of labor between, like, people who were the creatives and the people who did sales and all this stuff. Um, and at the end, you kind of churn out a, a product that, uh, that sort of is the result of a more or less um, kind of uh, hierarchical management system. Nowadays, when we are thinking about um, sort of web design, when we're thinking about uh, media campaigns in a um, you know, digital era, um, you, you, what, what's more often happening is that everybody's sort of updating their products in, at the same time um, through a service like GitHub or just putting them on the same internal server, and everybody at the organization can kind of see what's happening all at once, right? Um, and so you can see what the design team is doing in real time when you're on the, the team that's that's writing sort of the infrastructural code and things like that. And so you have more of a system in which lots of different people are interacting to a lot or are reacting to the decisions of a lot of other teams in real time as opposed to a system where something kind of gets handed from underling to manager to top manager and down to the people in another department or whatnot. So so kind of information and uh, and and uh, travels uh, much more um, kind of horizontally within within organizations now and and so there are people who would argue that that kind of is is also um, fostering these kinds of, of like kind of different organizational structures um, and you know the, and so 
Uh, and the last kind of thing that, that I would mention, which also goes back to this idea of kind of continually, uh, con- a continually changing uh, media landscape or continually changing uh, sort of uh, um, uh, like sort of technological environment as well, um, where you are, have not not just sort of new technologies on a regular basis, but people experimenting with new business models and things like that in a, in a, in a rapid fashion. Um, is you know so uh, David Stark and other kind of organizational scholars highlight the idea that sort of if you do have a company that has a bunch of different com- different teams that have their own uh, that all have their own kind of provincial um, logics uh, for for working and their own pro- and their own provincial ways of, of valuing um, work products, it's almost like having like, genetic diversity when you have some kind of cataclysmic um, event. Um, the species that have a bunch of have a bunch of different uh, variations uh, in like or in terms of the the attributes that they have are more likely to, to there's more likely to be something in the gene pool that survives um, and so so there's an argument that that's that this this way of doing things is you know while it can look really chaotic um, is actually you know pretty productive in a sense um, because it, it sort of uh, it means that you whatever comes your way there's likely someone or some team within your organization that that is well suited to deal with it. Um, so that's a, that's another kind of um, theme amongst all this. Yeah, and I guess the last, Oh, sorry, go ahead. So the, the point about the, the, iter- the iterative nature uh, of mm-hmm. so much of work and I guess sort of the, the permanent impermanence um, mm-hmm. is an interesting one. I mean, I, I, as you started with the ad campaign example, or again, another media example, you could imagine uh, 50 years ago or whatnot, you bring a bunch of people together and they're a cross-functional bunch of people, but they're acting in a, in a bureaucratic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're saying is this is, this is different than simply a diverse group of people coming together to work. It's about the work process itself. Right. There's, yeah. And, and I think, and one, one important point to make is that, the fact that we have um, these sort of more uh, project-based and kind of uh, and horizontally um, organized structures for work now does not mean that that traditional hierarchies have disappeared <laughs> either. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, Charlie Tillingist, who is the the um, the head of MSNBC.com um, during my uh, my time there was. Uh, one of the things that, that he argued, and he had a very kind of uh, like strong set of views on this, was that you need both within an organization. Um, and so he called it the difference between ownership and innovation um, was, the, was his take on it, and which was the idea that sort of um, there's sort of an organizational cost to just managing infrastructure, right? To having um, a, to sort of having a bunch of servers that need to be always on, and having uh, and just having a bunch of of uh, sort of um, uh, like kind of low-level uh, code and database management that needs to be r- running optimally, um, and that's not necessarily where you're going to be sort of you know breaking things and reinventing the wheel um, every few weeks, right? So, uh, and, and that kind of uh, that kind of infrastructure, that part of the the sort of um, the organization, uh, you know, he, he thought, well, you could probably manage that very kind of hierarchically, right? That's sort of the ownership 
and uh, part of this. Um, whereas when it come, came to sort of stuff like innovation, like spinning up uh, a big new website, like the website that became uh, the today.com, which was sort of a spinoff website, the today show or something like uh, MSNBC to MSNBC.com's uh, like video player redesign, um, things like that, where you're, you're inventing something new or you're trying to create a product that's going to require input from lots of different um, teams and be sort of an interdisciplinary um uh, sort of uh, project within your organization, um, then then you then you need sort of like more of these kind of like project based cross functional um, like uh, uh, teams and sort of the, uh, so hierarchic or post bureaucratic whatever whatever um, term you, you you like and that and so and so basically you kind of have to have um, both together um, so it's not necessarily an either or but a, a both and um, situation uh, a lot of the time and and so uh and so you can see this even at like sort of uh, even at kind of born and bred digital media organizations like google where you know people have talked about the fact that yes they have all of these sort of they have all of the kind of um uh, you know, sort of permissive management of, of a lot of uh, a lot of parts of their their company, but then you also have the people who have kind of like um, second class contracts and come into a, like a building at the corner of the parking lot or somewhere and scan books for the book scanning project, right? And so, so there's there's these different um, so even within sort of companies that that sort of pride themselves on having um, very different uh, or very kind of uh, uh, new age structures of management. There, there's still going to be areas that are much more um, kind of hierarchically organized than others. Another piece of, uh, of uh, this is a small piece, but I found this quite interesting. So in a lot of my work, branding is a dominant issue, and you touch on that, obviously, with MSNBC.com and MSNBC TV. You just, just touch on it with you know the Today Show and spinning that off. Um, branding a dominant issue. I spend a lot of time talking about the brand in each piece of work and it's created in, um, with a caveat that all media properties are essentially brands to some extent. Um, you end up quoting, a, an employee who makes, I think a very sharp observation about why the today show, uh, and nightly news, which are both flagship television programs for NBC. Um, but online, the today show is a strong brand and the, and nightly news is barely a brand at all. What, what is that distinction online between why one's a brand and one's not? Right. So there's, there's a, like, there's a, a few different factors that play into this. And one of them is sort of the temporal thing that I mentioned before, right? When you have the nightly news broadcast, um, you know, it, it won't, it, the, you know, if you want to put up a clip of that, uh, it's the, you know, at the time that people are actually going to come in and view it, which is during daytime hours, it's going to be, you know, over 10 hours old, um, by the time people get to it. And so it's not a great sort of competitive, um, piece in that way. There's also the, um, the, the, also the, the uh, another, aspect of this is the amount of programming that's produced, right? So, so the nightly news produces 22 minutes of programming, uh, an evening. I think now it's down to like 18 or something like that, if I, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, and so, so it produces just a vanishingly, um, small amount of programming, uh, compared to, uh, to the today show, which is, uh, which, you know, was on for, um, 
for hours. <laughs> so, you know, and so the, um, and so, and the, the today show programming is also being produced during daytime hours, right? At the time when you, when you want fresh content on the site. Um, so you have a lot more video content. It's being produced, uh, it's being produced at a time, uh, when it's easy to promote. Um, and, and, um, there's, uh, and the, uh, uh, you know, you have just the names of the programming where one is called the nightly news, which is which during daytime hours is not going to really immediately ring bells when you think like what's late and breaking. Um, and then you and then uh, to top it all off, there's also this sort of different um, demographics that you're talking about. So one of the reasons that today dot com was was very successful, um, it was it was the fact that sort of, it, you know, it's I think it's like the the, the, the demographic for, that they were aiming at was like sort of women ages, I think, 25 to 34 or somewhere in there. So um, who are, you know, an, a demographic that's in, in like insanely attractive to advertisers. Um, and uh, and so there's so there's that. Um, Part of it, uh, where we're sort of it's, that group is much is sort of much easier to sell um, into like when you're like, thinking about kind of selling eyeballs, and then the the last kind of uh, the last kind of piece of it uh, is that even even when you zoom in on sort of the, the what what are the the online behaviors of that particular group, it turns out that that women in that particular demographic consume more online video um, than than a lot of other demographics. So not only do you have more stuff to put up, um, even 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 if were the amount of video apples to apples, uh, you have a, a demographic that's going to watch more of the stuff than you than than uh, than the demographic that watches uh, the, that would be watching nightly news online. Um, and so there's uh, yeah, so there's a lot of different things that sort of privilege that particular uh, the privilege the Today Show as a brand um, online, uh, whereas nightly news, which is you know. NBC's sort of flagship property on the air um, doesn't necessarily make as great of a of an online brand. Right. Um, excuse me, and then and then of course you had like Meet the Press, which you know makes uh, content once a week. <laughs> and I think during my time there, I was you know David Gregory actually had his own independently managed website. Um, you know, so so I, you can imagine like I I never had a chance. I, I didn't talk to anybody. Um, about that, or I, I didn't, I, I, I don't, I didn't talk to many of the people who were involved in that program. I did talk to some of them, but, but the, uh, but you can imagine that that probably, you know, for somebody trying to promote that program, it would have, would have created a situation. Where it's like it, it, a lot of incentive to create your own website dedicated to it or something along those lines. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great point about the, that brands, I think we so often assume, well, it's about, you know, the associations, the intangible qualities, the personality associated with what it, we, we think that that's what it is, but yes, but to the, the, it's only valuable and only powerful to the extent that that permeates out. <laughs> right. Right. And nightly news doesn't permeate out enough. Uh, right to be strong, at least particularly in a digital age. I think that's a it's a it's a fascinating point, um, and I think an important one, at least um, not necessarily. I don't know in scholarship, but uh, certainly in the practical side. Uh, I, I want to shift a little bit. You did the so you did the field work at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could embed yourself today in any media company. Uh, free will, no questions asked, ask anything you want, go anywhere you want. Um, where would you go today? 
Oh, geez. Well, I think there's like maybe three places that I would love to, to, to explore. You know, one would be, um, so CBS has its online only, um, like sort of streaming, uh, arrangement, CBSN, um, which is basically sort of, it's almost like a cable news network or something like that, but it's, it's, but it, it's primary home is online. I mean, that's kind of a fascinating, um, initiative that they've put together. Um, there's also, you know, the, in, in the book, I have this kind of fascination with, uh, with these, um, infrastructure providers, like the companies that, that produce a lot of the, the software produce a lot of, like create things like cloud services or stuff like that, but don't actually, their name doesn't actually appear anywhere on stuff. Um, and so a company like, uh, MLB advanced media, which, uh, sort of does the infrastructure, they do the infrastructure for obviously major league baseballs, like MLB TV and that package and whatnot. Um, but they also sell it as a white label product to all sorts of other people. So if you're watching like a, a number of sort of cable channels, for example, um, if you're watching their content online, it's coming to you through the infrastructure of MLB advanced media. Um, there's been talk of even spinning that, uh, that operation off. So it's no longer part of major league baseball because it's, you know, because it's such a big sort of cash cow in and of itself, sort of like Amazon web services or something mm-hmm. like that, where the side business just becomes a huge, mm-hmm. um, a massive part of what you do. Um, and, and the last one that I would kind of mention, and this is kind of an oddball one, but I think it'd be interesting to do something like NASA television, which is sort of like uh, NASA has, has run its own um, television channel uh, that's sort of had pretty poor pickup from cable operations and stuff like that, um, you know, it, over the years, but it's, it's, it's kind of been the, this, this fascinating kind of uh, public affairs and, and public relations arm of NASA for years and years. And nowadays, now that it's online, I mean, it does actually get these spikes where people tune into it, right? So if the Mars landing is coming up and you want to live stream, of it, you know, that's going to come from NASA television. And so, you know, that's the website that you end up on. But I think it's kind of interesting because uh, it's a, it's completely, uh, it's a, it's a, basically an entirely public domain um, uh, like channel. Um, and so if you think about sort of the debates that happen around uh, media and the copyright wars and all this other stuff, um, a lot of what we're talking about is, um, uh, is, is this, uh, is, you know, kind of the, the role of people protecting their intellectual property. And we're also interested in the future of public broadcasting. Well, here's a, you know, but even PBS, like their stuff is copyrighted, this licensed and all this stuff. Here you have this sort of public broadcaster, um, who's, uh, who's, uh, you know, running all public domain content. And I think it's kind of an interesting counterpoint, um, in those arguments. And who wouldn't want to study an infrastructure that brings images back from Pluto, right? Like that's kind of a neat thing. So, so anyway. So I think those are kind of three of the places where I would, I'm really fascinated by that, that I, you know, that it would be, would be fun to look at in the future. Are, are there historical organizations or moments at which you also think about, wow, those were quite interesting or pivotal? Yeah. So, uh, like early cable television before it was, um, like the, uh, so, uh, when it back when it was community antenna television. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically places, uh, places like Ithaca at New York, where I lived for a while, um, you know, I had all these hills. It was really difficult to get over the air broadcast signals. Um, and so what they would do is they would basically just build these like, uh, you know, massive antennas or an array of antennas. Um, and they would, uh, and like, so in the community would 
all go in and, and pay for like this, for this huge antenna that would pick up for miles around. Um, and they would string like, uh, and they would, you know, string a long <laughs> antenna cable from it to everybody's house. And those early, uh, sort of what are community antenna or community antenna television networks ended up becoming like the early cable providers and stuff like that. And so that was kind of a transformative moment. If you go back and look at some of the press coverage from when that was happening, a lot of the same debates that sort of continue that crop up today about sort of like, is this some kind of like copyright infringement where, or basically, you know, they're selling subscriptions to these antenna networks and are they reselling freely broadcast over the air content? Are they like basically pirating our intellectual property? Um, All these types of things. So, so there's, there's a lot there. So that's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting moment. Um, you know, and there's also just like there's work by other people um, that that I admire that I wouldn't necessarily uh, know enough to replicate at this moment, but it's kind of inspirational. So like um, uh, somebody uh, like McMillian uh, did a uh, he did a. Um, uh, book called Smoking Typewriters, where he talks about the 60s underground press and the syndication networks that they set up to sort of um, distribute the like the just uh, accounts by ordinary individuals to underground papers across the country. Um, and then Richard John has done amazing sort of historical work on like the the postal service and the telegraph and and telephone and all these different. Um, uh, sort of uh, communication infrastructures and stuff like that. So there's a lot of really cool uh, historical examples out there, um, but, you know, things that are that are really neat. Um, and in some ways, we know more about like so we, we, there are more people studying kind of um, some of the way back distribution infrastructures like the telephone or the mm-hmm. or the telegraph than there are studying kind of contemporary uh, distribution as such. You have a lot of people interested in new media, but not as many people who think of it as uh, distribution in a way that you can kind of contextualize it historically in that way. The cover of this book is a is a historical. The image on the cover of this book is a is. A historical one. Uh, it's certainly not. I wouldn't call it web focused. All right. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an Indian head test card uh, from right. post World War II era. Following, I, I had no idea what it was. I had to look it up. Um, or essentially the sign off that a station would put on on the, on the screen after programming ends in a world where programming ended at one point. Right. Mm-hmm. How did how did that end up on a book about web development? Well, so it's all, so, so part of it is, yeah, so, so as with the stuff that I studied, part of it was, uh, was, was, um, part of it had to do with, with, uh, um, with fun ideas and part of it was just practical nuts and bolts stuff that, so, uh, so on the one hand, so, I mean, I've always been kind of fascinated with this image and, uh, and, um, the, uh, um, a professor I had at, uh, at, at, at during grad school um, used to uh, talk about, you know, when television was a new thing, people would be so fascinated just by the phenomenon of it that when when uh, the programs went off the air, they would just sit for a while and watch the test pattern. Right. And he used to joke about like the the very short span of time in which, you know, you went from that to like sort of the, you know, like just game shows, right? And so it's like, you know, we have this, this very short span in which people went from sort of what hath God wrought to the $64,000 question was the way that he phrased it. Um, and so, so I think it's interesting, like it was this moment in which distribution was kind of a part of, of culture and a fascinating um, kind of thing. Um, and so, so there was, there's that aspect of it. That's re- there's that reason that the image has always kind of been at the back of my mind. Um, but there's also the strictly practical, practical aspect of it, which is, 
is uh, the, the press said, well, we're going to publish this in paperback so it's cheap enough to sell some copies and it's going to have a black and white cover. <laughs> so if you've got an image that's in the public domain and it's in black and white, we'd love to, we'd love to hear your ideas. And so this is both of those things. <laughs> Heterogeneous engineering at work. Exactly. There, there you go. <laughs> Final question for you. Uh, What's something that you believed, thought about uh, either media distribution at MSNBC in particular or just generally um, when you first started this research, first started the dissertation work that you've changed your mind or no longer believe after completion today? Oh, let's see. Um, so I, I would – so I think – okay, so I think probably the the – the thing that I'll say here is probably it's it's only distribution in sort of the most contemporary understanding of the term distribution, where we're talking a lot about um, sort of uh, it becoming a two-way process, where the audience is always very much in uh, at, at, where the audience is almost always kind of very visible to practitioners, um, and you, you can cite historical examples where, you know, there were sort of participatory aspects of even the oldest kind of distribution infrastructures. But as I mentioned kind of in the introduction of the book, there was there was this period in which particularly people who were kind of studying um, uh, the way these organizations were working with technology and lots and lots of critics from like the Silicon Valley and, and the and tech press and stuff like that were looking at the way that large media organizations were kind of like reticent to adopt new digital technologies and there was this idea that they were kind of dragging their feet and that they had disdain for the audience and all these things. And maybe some of those things are true to an extent. Um, but I think all the people who are sort of clamoring for uh, sort of these legacy media organizations to really just um, to just take a, uh, to take a page from new media organizations uh, and, and basically, look, you know, to just become, uh, or basically take a page from Twitter or take a page from Facebook or just kind of uh, learn from the kind of new uh, small mammals in the Silicon Valley how to how to behave. Um, I think a lot of the, the challenges of that were underappreciated. And it's not just that you have an old business model that it takes a long time to transition out of, which is a thing, right, where it's going to take a long time um, to figure out how to you, – you need your existing revenue stream to fund any new experiments. And so it's going to take a while to transition in that way. But the other thing is that when it comes to sort of uh, your view of the audience and how you interact with the audience um, – there are also challenges that legacy media organizations face that new media organizations um, don't or do to a lesser extent when they're when they're first starting up, right? So if you look at a startup, if you're a new startup with you know some name that's that's misspelled so it'll turn up in search results or something like that, right? You're a big problem as the brand new media organization is that no one's heard of you, and that and when they do come to you, you know they start using your platform and. At, you know, hopefully, and and you can kind of, uh, and and it's pretty easy to sort of take input at that point, right? You have a few thousand users; they start doing something unexpected, and so um, so you you uh, create a feature that's based around like some new use of the site. It's pretty easy to sort of model yourself around the interests of your users, um, and and the people who come to you have relatively few preconceptions about what you do to the extent that they're inventing new uses of your platform. If you are CBS or if you're ABC News or if you're the New York Times, you know, it's not unique to television organizations. 
everybody has an opinion about who you are and what you do. These legacy media brands, you know, that were around during the era where there were three networks in every, only three networks in every home or only a few magazines on the news rack or newspapers that were available um, like nationally or even locally. Everybody has an opinion about what they do, right? And everybody has a grudge or a thing that they think about you, um, and and so, uh, you know, Will Femia put this really eloquently in the book, but I, I, I can't, you know, I can't summon his quote from memory all that well, you know, but if you think about, for example, um, like CBS or something like that, you know, the minute that they open the, the a common thread, right? Everybody has an opinion on who they are and what they do. And it's, and you know, they're the people who hired Dan Rather, or they're the people who fired Dan Rather, or they're the people who, you know, who brought in Katie Kirk or whatever it is that they, that they like, you know, love or hate about your organization. Um, that, you know, that's all there immediately from day one. Um, and it creates a different kind of conversation. Uh, that has different challenges to managing it from the small community that get acquainted with one another and develops a set of norms right out the gate. Um, you know, very frequently, and again, this is a quote from, from Will, is there's this idea that sort of like the commenters who show up on a, on a legacy media site are the people who are yelling at their television set and don't realize there's a person on the other end, right? That's how he put it. I always love that quote. Um, and, and so the challenges of the, of man, challenges of managing that are very different. And one of the stories in the book is of Newsvine, this, this, uh, social media company that when it became sort of the community feature set for, uh, for this, for this set of legacy media properties had to really rethink how it's, how it managed community conversations. So they had one infrastructure that was built around a particular community. And even though the technology was working just fine, um, when you started introducing mainstream media commenters onto it, it behaved in such a different way that there were people within the television organization who thought that it must be broken, right? That there's something wrong with the software or something or, or what, or what's going or, or that, or maybe that's the news buying community, the people on this, the, 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 the pre-existing social media site that were, that had attitude problems or something like that, right? There were, there were all these, these kind of like, you know, just uh, theories tossed around about why things uh, looked so ugly initially. And it's because there's just a whole different like set of norms and uh, that they go around uh, or they go with commenting on um, these mainstream media sites. And one of the big challenges as, as conceived by, by Mike Davidson and the people who were at that, that company. And I think more broadly now within the media industry is, you know, is if, if, you know, the initial challenge of, of developing online communities was sort of how do you take this group of people um, you know, and, and put them, pl- place them in a new environment that they have to kind of orient themselves to and create a productive conversation. You know, now it's sort of how, you know, for at least when it comes to these, these larger, uh, like, uh, mainstream media companies, it becomes increasingly about sort of, how do you take this mass of people who already have a very strong opinion about about the the brand that they're interacting with and who uh, who may not even be thinking about the other people who are reading right or about or about there being any sort of community there and how do you fashion community um, in that environment with those sets of people so the challenge of sort of, of producing you know constructive interactions with an audience uh, is is very different from the challenge uh, is very different for mainstream media organizations or legacy 
legacy media organizations than it has been for startups. And I think that that was something that, that I didn't fully appreciate initially. And then I think a lot of sort of the industry commentators who uh, for the longest time were harshing on, on big media organizations um, didn't quite see out of the gate. So... Today's guest has been Josh Braun. He is the author of This Program is Brought to You by Distributing Television News Online. Josh, thanks for being part of the New Books in Media and Communications podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.